Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Welcome to the Fair Perspectives podcast, the official podcast of the pro-human movement brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Today, we speak with Daryl Davis, who is an accomplished jazz and blues musician, author, and one of the most prominent racial justice activists. Daryl's method to end racism is unique and groundbreaking. As a Black traveling musician, he went around the country attempting to dispel racism from those who hated him the most by befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan and collecting their robes as they disavowed their hatred. To date, he has come into possession of no less than 200 robes. In this episode, we discuss how to bridge divides, the importance of dialogue, how to change minds effectively, how these ideas may apply in corporate training, Black Lives Matter, and why it's time to get rid of Black History Month. On the topic of Black Lives Matter, Daryl made some assertions about BLM's structural organization that Angel and I didn't necessarily agree with. We push back only lightly in the interest of continuity and free flow of conversation. Both of us are fully aware that BLM is a legitimate organization with multiple chapters, although Daryl is also right to say that there is a large overarching movement that isn't necessarily directly affiliated with the organization. Daryl's pro-human vision of defeating hatred and bringing people together across the largest barriers has infused all affairs programs. Daryl serves as a member of the advisory board and is also a senior fellow at FAIR working on our corporate diversity training programs available at fairdiversity.org, educational programs available at fairstory.org, and much more. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor to bring you Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. So I, I think you're probably, if any guest needs no introduction, it's you. Uh, oh, we, will, <laughs> we will have introduced you anyway, but anybody listening to the Fair Perspectives podcast is going to know who you are and why uh, this is such an exciting um, opportunity for us to get to talk to you. We're meeting for the first time. Uh, I feel like Melissa already knows you, but. I haven't had the honor just yet. And I, and I was telling you just before we started that this is for me as, you know, based on what I've been doing and writing about the last couple of years, meeting you is like meeting Obi-Wan. So 
<laughs> I am your humble Padawan. And well, I'm looking forward friendly. to meeting you in person. Yeah, and that would be even more amazing. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an honor to meet you, sir, and uh, I'm excited to get to talk to you. Now, so yep. everybody, I feel like most people are aware of what you've done, right? But the, the kind of, why don't you give us a quick potted sort of um, run through of, of your, your exploits in this sort of uh, changing people's minds arena? Well, basically, professionally, music is my profession. But uh, improving race relations has been my obsession going on 40 years now. And uh, as, as an adult musician performing all over this country and around the world, you know, I've, I've met a variety of people from all walks of life, all ideologies, cultures, belief systems, religions, et cetera, skin colors. And all of that has helped grow me personally into my perspectives and who I am today. And basically... Uh, you know, I traveled a lot as a child because I was I was the child of parents in the U.S. Foreign Service. So I grew up as an American embassy brat. And when you combine my childhood travels, starting at the age of three, I'm 63 now, along with my adulthood travels, I've been in a total of 61 different countries on six continents. So all of that is to say it doesn't make me a better human being than somebody else. But what it has given me is a better and broader perspective of humanity than most people, you know, who, who, who have stayed pretty much around their own region or environment. And one thing that I have learned, you know, that I want to share with anyone and everyone is that no matter how far I've traveled from my own country, the United States, whether it's right next door to Mexico or Canada or halfway around the globe, no matter how different the people I encounter may be. They don't look like me. They don't speak my language. They don't worship as I do or whatnot. I, you know, I found one thing. We all are human beings. And as such, we all want the same basic five core values in our lives. Everyone wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be respected. We all want to be heard. We all want to be treated fairly. And we all want basically the same things for our family as anybody else wants for their family. And if we can learn to employ those five uh, values uh, or any of those five values, when we find ourselves in an adversarial situation or in a culture or society in which we're unfamiliar, I can guarantee you that your navigation will be that much more smooth and that much more positive. And I have found that to be true when I have encountered white supremacists. Obviously, I don't look like a white supremacist. So, you know, I am their nemesis. And so when I encounter them, sometimes they can be contentious or whatever. But when I employ those values, you know, they step back and they listen. You know, respect is a big thing. Wanting to be heard is a big thing. You know, they, they all want to be heard. You know, you don't necessarily have to respect what somebody is saying, but respect their right to say it. And I found that, you know, if you sit back and listen, they will feel compelled to reciprocate. And listen to you. And I'm a firm believer that a missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. And that has been the key uh, to my success in having conversations with white supremacists and many, many of these white supremacists leaving uh, those groups, renouncing that ideology and giving me their robes, their hoods, uh, their, their swastika flags, if they're neo-Nazis and things like that. 
you know, when you give somebody your robe and hood, that's your uniform. That 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 is the core of your beliefs. It'd be like a U.S. general in, in our military taking off his uniform and giving it to ISIS. You know, that's how extreme it is. A white supremacist and a black man giving me a, his personal clan robe. You know, that means something got through. And I'm telling you, it was all five or one, two, three, four of those five values that resonated. And if that can resonate with a white supremacist coming from a black man, I don't understand how many of us cannot sit at our own dinner table and communicate with our family over Thanksgiving because my sister voted for that person. I voted for this person. <laughs> that is crazy. You know, whoever is running for the highest office in the land in this country is only going to be there for a minimum of four years or a maximum of eight years. You have been with your family for decades. You're going to throw all that away over four or eight years and, and, and not even talk to each other over the dinner table. Mm. You know, and I can go to a Klan rally and talk to somebody. Uh-uh. Right. Take those five values, take a step back, take a deep breath and employ them and you will see things begin to change. So I'd love to dig into this a little bit because, you know, famously you've converted over 200 Klansmen, you've collected their robes. And the stories all start out in a similar way, at least many of the ones that I've heard. Well, I don't like to say that I converted them. Well, what I like to say is I gave them impetus to rethink. And then they did and they and they converted themselves. That's that's a good point. Yes, I think that's true. But but you were the catalyst for many of these people. Right. And but there is kind of a sneaky catalyst before you showed up on the scene, which is which is something that I've picked up on and I wanted to ask you about. They needed, to, they needed to at least be open to talking to you in the first place, right? So, you know, it's a dangerous situation. There well, are people- It's even know. more tricky than that because, you know, everybody from that side, if they don't know me personally, they know who I am. They know of me because, you know, uh-huh. we're traveled in that circle like, like, like the grapevine. Right. Uh, but initially, you know, they didn't know me. And- I, they would not know that I was black. My secretary is white, and I would have her phone them up, these clan leaders. And, uh-huh. I, and I, would, I would tell her specifically, do not tell them that I'm black. Just say you're working for somebody who's writing a book on the clan. That's what I was doing at the time, you know, some 30 years ago. And uh, ask them if they would consider sitting down and doing an interview with me. Now, I specifically had her phone because she is white. And they would pick up in her voice on the other end of the phone line. This is a white woman, you know, and, and I know the mentality well enough to know that they would not automatically think that this white woman is working for a black man, especially a black man who's writing a book on the Klan because they didn't exist. My book was the first book written on the, on the Ku Klux Klan uh, from the perspective of having in-person interviews with them, you know, by a black author. So if I had called, they might pick up in my voice that I'm black, say, no, I'm not talking to you. Click. And my whole project would have ended, you know, before it ever got started. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, but, but those, those um, first few, at least, that kind of led you to writing the book and getting deeper into it. Right. If my understanding is that those were kind of chance encounters, you were at a gig and you just happened to sit down next to a guy who said, you know, I've never sat down next to a black man before. Well, yeah, very similar. What happened was I was playing in a country band and we were in an all-white bar, an all-white lounge in a town called Frederick, Maryland, which is about an hour and 20 minutes outside of Washington, D.C. It's called the Silver Dollar Lounge. 
And the Silver Dollar Lounge had a reputation for being an all-white uh, bar. And there were no signs saying no black people allowed or whites only, nothing like that. You know, you could go in there, but, you know, you feel very unwelcome. And when you go somewhere where you're, where you're not welcome and alcohol is being served, <laughs> it's not a good combination. But here I was in this place, the only black person in the band, the only black person in the place. And we had just finished our first set of music. And we're taking a break. <laughs> me, And somebody came up from behind and put their arm out across my shoulder. Now, I don't know anybody in this joint. So I'm turning around trying to see who's touching me. And it was this white guy, maybe 15 to 18 years older than me. Big smile on his face, very happy. And he said, man, I sure like your music. You know, and I shook his hand and thanked him. And he says, you know, this is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, that's and, Yeah, I was not offended, but uh, <laughs> I was surprised that, you know, he didn't know the black origin of that style of music. You know, that boogie-woogie blues evolved into rock and roll and rockabilly. And uh, I began explaining it to him, and he didn't believe, he didn't believe it. No, no, Jerry Lee invented that. I said, look, man, I know Jerry Lee Lewis personally. He's a friend of mine. You know, he's told me himself. He didn't believe that either, but he was so fascinated. <laughs> he was so fascinated with me. He invited me back to his table, wanted to buy me a drink. I had a cranberry juice mm. and he takes his glass and he clinks my glass and cheers me. And then he says, you know, this is the first time he'd ever sat down with a black man gotcha. and had a drink. And now I was, uh, I'm not stupid, but I, I, I can be naive. And uh, I was very naive. And I, I, I could not imagine this guy being a decade and a half older than me. He'd never sat down with a black guy before. And at that point in my life, I had literally sat down with thousands of white people at one time or another and had a meal, a beverage, a conversation. I mean, not sitting down with somebody else was just beyond my, you know, my sphere. And I asked him innocently, I said, why? And at first he didn't answer me. I asked him again. And finally, he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And I burst out laughing because I didn't believe them. You know, I know a lot about the Klan. And they don't just come around and hug a black guy. I want to buy him a drink. It doesn't work that way. And so I figured the guy's joking. I'm laughing at at the joke. He went inside his pocket, produced his wallet, and handed me his Klan membership card. And I stopped laughing because it was real. It wasn't funny anymore. But we became friends, you know. And his fascination with me, you know, led him to give me his phone number. And uh, he wanted me to call him anytime I came back to that bar to perform because he wanted to bring his friends, meaning, you know, Klansmen and Klanswomen to this bar to see this black guy who plays like Jerry Lee Lewis. Mm-hmm. And so I'd call him every six weeks, you know, when the band was returning there. And um, he would show up with uh, Klan people, not, you know, in robes and hoods, in their regular clothes. And they'd watch me play. They'd dance to our music. And on the break, I'd go and meet them. There were a few of them who did not want to meet me. They see me walking towards the table and they'd get up and scurry across the room to oh, the other okay. side. But there were those who were very curious and would hang there and ask me questions and all that kind of thing. Right. So that okay, so that's the distinction I'm trying to to zero in on is there's the cohort that are willing to approach you unsolicited, mm-hmm. unbidden, and just tap you on the shoulder and start talking to you despite their right. affiliations and despite their beliefs. And then there are the ones who will avoid you at all costs and maybe worse you know, if they, if they found themselves face to face with you would do something terrible. So right. I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, we, we've heard about, about, you know, instances like the one you just outlined for us, but have there been any where you attempted a connection and, and you got the opposite? And yeah. what did you do? What uh, did you do then? Well, in some cases I've, I've had to be violent, unfortunately, 
I've had to engage in violence and hurt people, put them in the hospital, put them in jail, because my life was threatened, my life was in danger, people put their hands on me in a, in a violent manner. So, you know, you're left with, you're, there are some people who just don't want to talk, you know, and they consider you to be a cockroach. What do you do? You walk over and you stomp on it and get rid of it. And that's how they view you because you're black, because you're gay, because you're Jewish, because you're Muslim, because you're whatever, you know, they're not. And, and so there's no talking with them. And, you know, if you can't outrun them, then you've got to, you know, you've got to do what you got to do. Right. Right. And now I, 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 fortunately for me, those times have been few and far between, but I've had a couple instances where I, where I, I have engaged in violence with somebody and hurt somebody. And they've later come back to me and apologized. Wow. But there are others, you know, who, who will never change. You know, they will go to their grave with that mentality. Sure. I imagine that part of the reason that you got some of the change and part of the reason that you've been successful in what you've done is that despite their behavior towards you, your behavior towards them didn't change, except for the obvious, you know, I won't let you harm me. But right. beyond that, I'm not going to do the thing that you're doing back to me. Right. Um, exactly. And I think, you know, what, one of the most violent ones, you know, he didn't know I was black and, you know, normally you know, say, okay, you know, I'll meet you here. Or I'll meet you there. Uh, sometimes they would invite you over to the house, not knowing that you're black. So, you know, I'd go knock on the door and people like freak <laughs> out, you know, um, there was one guy, you know, he was like totally freaked out. And my secretary had come with me. And as I said, she's white. She's standing right next to me on the porch when I knock on the door. Well, what's funny is, as I'm pulling up the driveway, it's like in rural West Virginia, pulling up the driveway, and I see, you know, I see the big picture window, and I see somebody peeping, you know, out the window, you know, watching me pull up the driveway, and I recognize, you know, it's, it's that clan leader, and um, I see, you know, he's not being for a shop, so uh, you know, I pull up there, and we walk up to, to his porch, I knock on the door, and he opens the door, and I, I think at first he thought I was, I was just somebody selling something. I wasn't the person he was waiting for. But the person he was waiting for, of course, is going to be white. I mean, why would a black man want to be coming to a clansman's house, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I said, I'm Daryl Davis. And he, like, looked shocked. He opened the door a little bit more, looked at my secretary. And then he says, right in front of me, as though I'm not there, why don't you tell me he was black? Like that, you know. And uh, <laughs> I said, well... What difference does it make? You know, you know, if you're going to tell me the truth, does the truth differ whether you tell it to a white person or a black person? And he looked at me and I said, hey, I am what I am. I am who I am. I'm interested in you and your perspectives. So he paused for a second and he said, come on in. And so I came in. Uh, we sat in his kitchen and he offered me a cup of coffee and I don't drink coffee. And I said, oh, no, you know, no, 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 thank you. And then he offered me a glass of orange juice. You know, it was in the morning. And um, I used to drink tons of orange juice, but I'm diabetic, so I can't do that anymore. So I, and I politely declined. He goes, what? Uh, you don't want to drink with a white man? I mean, the guy was like being serious, you know? <laughs> and, and my secretary, before I could answer, said, oh, no, you know, he, he doesn't like coffee, but he's diabetic. He says, oh, well, you, you know, would you like a, a diet soda or some water? I said, sure. So, you know, and then he calmed down, you know, and after, now, now we can drink together and we can talk. Wow. Yeah, see, it's, I think, you know, speak, going back to your five points, that that compulsion to be heard and to be listened to is stronger even than some ideological leanings. Let me let me show you 38 seconds of something. Listen to what this guy says. This is a, this is an imperial wizard, a national clan leader. All right. 
This is one of the few African-Americans you will ever find attending a KKK rally. More than attending, he is welcome. I got more respect for that black man than I do you white niggers. The <laughs> friendship transcended the color barrier. Listen to Kelly for a Klan rally. I'm a Colorado man as well, because I believe in what he stands for and he believes in what I stand for. A lot of times we don't agree with everything, but at least he respects me to sit down and listen to me. And I respect him to sit down and listen to him. The strange relationship of a KKK wizard and his black buddy. In Washington, I'm Carl Rochelle, CNN Sunday morning. Okay, so now you heard yeah, uh, the, the first guy you saw talking to me in the white robe and the green and the green cape and green stripes. That's what's known as a grand dragon. Grand dragon means state leader. He oversees all the chapters within the state. The the the, the guy in the white robe with the blue cape and the, and the blue stripes is the imperial wizard. Okay, which means national leader. He he oversees all the states. All the grand dragons report to him. All right. So Roger Kelly, the, the, the guy who said what he said was, we may not agree on everything, but at least he respects me to sit down and listen to me. And I respect him to sit down and listen to him. Those were his words. Very important words. If you have a, an opponent, an adversary, it doesn't even have to be about race. Okay. In fact, let's take race off the table for a second. Okay. It could be any other hot topic, abortion, nuclear weapons, of the current presidential election, uh, global warming, the war in the Middle East, whatever. You're on one side, somebody else is on the other side. Give that person a platform. Allow them to express their views. Understand something. He said, again, he said, we may not agree on everything, but at least he respects me to sit down and listen to me, and I respect him to sit down and listen to him. Understand something. I'm not a supremacist. I'm not a racist, a separatist, a nationalist, any of those things. I did not respect what he had to say. I simply respected his right to say it, okay? Now, as a result, in that one sentence that he said, that you heard him say, he named three of those five core values. The five are everybody wants to be loved, they want to be respected, they want to be heard, they want to be treated fairly, and they want the same thing for their family as you want for your family. He said, I respected him. That's one of those values. He said, I listened to him. I allowed him to be heard. That's a, that's, a, that's a second value. He said, because I respected and listened to him, he sat down and respected and listened to me. That's treating each other fairly. He named three of those core values, all right? As a result, not overnight, but over time, that man quit the Ku Klux Klan, renounced it, okay? And today I own his robe and hood. And the grand dragon that you saw first talking to me in the green with the white robe also gave it up. And I got his robe. Here they are, right there. Wow. Okay. So, so those core values work. They work. Well, we, you, we, we spend so much time in this country talking about the other person, talking at the other person, and talking past the other person. Why don't we consider spending a few minutes, just a few minutes, talking with the other person? That, that would clear up so many different things. Well, Daryl, I, I fear that the perspectives that you espouse here are kind of endangered today here in America. You see it happening on different fronts with what's happening in schools, you know, racial segregation, resegregation again, and racial affinity groups. Ultimately, you know, your process has been to establish contact, establish a common humanity. And when we separate ourselves um, and, you know, 
we separate our cultures, you know, in some cases, people consider it, say, cultural appropriation to play somebody else's music without, uh, you know, without attribution or something like that. Um, putting up barriers to culture again. And, and I worry that, um, you know, that we're kind of walking in, in the wrong direction. One of the things that um, I guess I, I mentioned to you before, I distinctly remember the last time I saw you was when we were at a conference um, and we were at the after party, which was in a bar in New Jersey. And there, were a, there was a crowd of Antifa activists assembled opposite. The police were protecting kind of both sides. They were in between. And the crowd was yelling at, at us all in the bar um, and in particular called you, you know, a white supremacist. And so this idea that, you know, if you're talking to people that have the wrong politics or that, you disagree, or that they disagree with, have um, identitarian, racial identitarian views, that you are then guilty of that moral pollution and it it's a taint on you. And so we have, we live now in the world where there's moral transitivity, right? If you talk to this person now, then you are, you espouse his values. How, how are you, how do we operate now in the world like that? And is there anything we can do to change this mindset? Because it's, I think it's going to impede progress. Yes, absolutely, Melissa. And yeah, uh, you know, when, when they were yelling all that kind of stuff, I, I said to, to the host, um, of, of the of the after party, I said, "Hey, you know what? Let's invite them over. You know, there's a whole variety of people in, the, in in this room who may not agree politically with each other, but we're talking, we're getting along, we're we're having a good time together. Let's invite them over so that they can see this and they can they can say whatever they want to say. You know, and he agreed. And so when uh, when they in uh, when they went to invite them over." Um, they said, no, they don't want to be in there with a bunch of white supremacists. And he said, well, Daryl Davis is in there. Obviously, he's not a white. You know, and the guy said, yeah, he's a white supremacist, uh, even though they know I'm black. But, you know, but, you know, when you call me a white supremacist, you've already lost the battle. I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> the, the war is over, <laughs> you know. But here's here's the thing, how I think, you know, that we approach two things, how we approach things uh, incorrectly, if you will. Number one, one's perception is one's reality, all right? Whatever they perceive becomes their reality. Even if it's not real, it's still their reality. You cannot change somebody's reality. And the more you attack their reality, the more they're going to defend it and get contentious, all right? So here's what you do. If you want somebody to change, offer them a better perception. And if they resonate with your perception that you've offered or one of your perceptions, they will then change their own reality because their perception becomes their reality. So let me give you just, I'm going to give you two examples, one um, hypothetical and the other one um, real. All right. Let's say you have a seven or eight year old brother and he goes to a magic show with his buddy and his buddy's parents. And he comes home and tells you, you're not going to believe this. You know, this, this magician on stage, he asked for a female volunteer and 50 women raised their hand. He picked one out of the audience, had her come up on stage. Then he had her climb into this long box and stick her feet out the hole at that end and stick her head out the hole at this end. And then he took a chainsaw and went, and he cut that box in half. He cut that woman in half. And you try to say, 
Well, no, that didn't exactly happen. Yes, it did. I was there. You didn't see it. You weren't there. I saw it with my own two eyes. That chainsaw went right through the box. The wood split everything. That's his reality. He knows what he saw. And you cannot tell him he did not see that chainsaw cut that box in half. All right? And the more you try to tell him that, the more he's going to fight you. And then to make it even more real for you, he tells you, you know, that while the woman was cut in half, he asked her to wiggle her, her feet. And she, and she wiggled her feet. And they took the half with the feet and moved that half of the box over to stage, you know, right, and took the half of the head and moved it over to stage left. And then he went over there and talked to the head. And the woman's head talked back to him. And then he brought the two halves back together and opened the box. And the woman climbed out, full form, no blood, all intact. He cut her in half and he put her back together, I'm telling you. And you're saying, well, no, it's really an illusion. No, it's not. I'm telling you, I saw it, you know. So you're attacking his reality. Don't do that. What you do is you offer him a better perception. You say, listen, I, I, you know, I wasn't there. I, I, I hear what you're saying. And, and I believe you. But here's the thing. Could it possibly be that, you know, when you said he asked for a female volunteer and 50 women raised their hand, could it be just possible that the woman he chose, maybe she works for him? Maybe he planted her in the audience and she tours around the country everywhere he does his show. She knows a trick. She comes up on stage and he has her get into the box. And there's already a pair of mannequin dummy legs laying on the floor of the box that are wearing the same stockings and same shoes she has on. She picks them up and shows them out the hole. You can't see because the box is solid wood and shows them out the hole at that end. And when he tells her, and she, and she brings her own knees up under her chest. So her whole body is on that half of the box. And these dummy legs are sticking out the hole on the other side. And when he says, wiggle your feet, she just shakes the, the, uh, the, the, the legs in her hand. And then when he separates the boxes, puts the legs over on that side of the stage and the head over on this side of the stage, he has to, to divert your attention from those legs. Because now those legs can't move on their own. Because you know, that lady is not holding them anymore. So he goes over and he talks to the head and that's where all your attention goes. And the head talks back because her whole body is there. Her knees are up under her chest. And then he brings the two halves back together. She simply reaches over, pulls the legs out of the hole, leaves them on the floor of the box and she climbs out. So your seven or eight year old brother says, hmm, yeah, I guess that would be the only way it could work. You've offered him a better perception and then he changes his own reality. It's always better if somebody comes to their own thought process and converts themselves. You give them the impetus, the catalyst, all right? That will be a lot stronger than you trying to pound some reality into them. It's not going to work. Because you see, ignorance is what breeds fear. You know, we fear those things of which we're ignorant, things that we don't understand. And if we don't address that fear and keep that fear in check, that fear will lead to hatred. Because we hate the things that frighten us. If we don't address the hatred, that will escalate into anger, which then transcends into destruction. So you saw exactly what I'm talking about four years ago on August 12th, uh, 2017, in Charlottesville, Virginia, when they had the large white supremacist rally. And I know all those people. I know them personally, the ones who put together that rally. On August 12, 2017, there was a lot of ignorance in Charlottesville, Virginia. There was a lot of fear in Charlottesville. 
It transcended, escalated into hatred. And what did it culminate in? It culminated in destruction. When a white supremacist got inside his vehicle and attempted to murder as many counter-protesters as he could by driving his car full force, full speed into the crowd, he succeeded in injuring 20, uh, 24, two dozen people and murdering one young lady named Heather Heyer. Ignorance breeds fear, breeds hatred, breeds destruction. The problem that, that, that we have today is how to address it. And most of us go about it, in my opinion, because I don't speak for everybody, in my opinion, we're addressing it wrong. We're addressing it top down. All right. You know, if you, if you, if you work for a company or a corporation, something like that, yes, you want to start at the top because everything trickles down from the top. But in situations like this, no, you got to start at the bottom. I say forget about the destruction. That which is destroyed is not coming back. All right. Forget about the, the uh, destruction. It's just a symptom. It's a byproduct of the nucleus of the root cause. Forget about the hatred. That, too, is a byproduct. All right. Forget about the fear. Another symptom. Go to address the root cause, the nucleus, which is ignorance. If you cure the ignorance, then there's nothing to fear because we fear that of which we are ignorant. With nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate. We hate that of which we fear. With nothing to hate, there's nothing to get angry about. And with nothing to get angry about, there's nothing to destroy. The good thing is this. There is a cure for ignorance. That cure is called education and exposure. And that's where we need to focus our energy, our efforts, our, our money, and our time on providing an education and exposure for those who may be ignorant. We all are ignorant to something. We all don't know everything about everything. So, but the more we learn, the better off we are, the less ignorant we are. So if we focus on curing the ignorance, which we can do through education and exposure, then all those byproducts and symptoms don't even come into play. That leads me actually to something that I, I wanted to ask you about, which is related to, you know, some of the retorts that I get when I bring you up, which I often do, you know, glowingly and respectfully, uh, giving you as an example of just how much is possible when we take the approaches that you're outlining. But, you know, the one, one kind of refrain that we hear all the time is, it's not my job to educate you, right? Like I have enough to deal with. How, how, can, how can you put it upon me now to educate and expose and cure your ignorance? You know, you should do that yourself. That's kind of the attitude that many people adopt. And I wonder what your response is to that. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. I have a couple of responses to that because you know what? I hear the same thing. Right. You know, why are you wasting time trying to teach white people how to treat us? I hear that from people who look like me and things like that. You know what? Here's the thing. If you've been mistreated for 400 years, I have been here. I have been here for 402 years as the, as the descendant of slaves. Okay? 1619 was when they came over. So that's 402 years. 403 years next year, in a few weeks. All right? When you have been mistreated for 400 years and nothing else is working, maybe it's time you start teaching them how to treat you. Unless you want another 400 years of it. All right. My, you know, what, what I have done has gained me friends who used to hate me, who used to be my enemy. I've got a whole slew of fan robes and, and Nazi flags. I asked those people, what have you done to put a dent in racism? How many Nazi flags have you collected? How many clan um, robes have you collected? And then normally they shut up. And then I, and then I point out to them, 
these are the are are the same people who march up and down in front of the police departments across the country, yelling and screaming at the police. You know, uh, stop shooting us in the back. Stop shooting us for holding our wallet. The police are racist. You know, no justice, no peace. Enough, enough. Yes, a lot of that is justified. Some of it may not be, but a lot of it is justified. All right. But here's the thing: they telling me I'm teaching white people how to how to uh, treat other people. They're being hypocrites because the police that they are protesting against, telling them not to shoot you in the back, those are white police officers because it usually happens when a black person is shot in the back or a black person is shot for holding his wallet or cell phone or getting in the car or out of the car or whatever. All right. Are you not teaching the police how to treat you when you're marching up and down in front of their department with your bullhorn, telling them what not to do and what, and, and what to do? You're trying to teach white police officers how to treat you because you're tired, you're sick and tired of getting shot. You're sick and tired of getting pulled over and profiled. So you're teaching white police officers who you call white supremacists. You know, oftentimes the chant is the, KK, uh, the police and the Klan walk hand in hand. The police and the Klan walk hand in hand. I've heard that a million times at a lot of these protests. So you're teaching what you consider to be white supremacists in the police department to, to, to how, to, how to treat you. What's the difference between teaching somebody in a uniform and a badge how to treat you and teaching somebody in a Klan robe and hood how to treat you? It's the same thing, just different clothing. So stop being a hypocrite and, and, and telling me to stop teaching people how to treat me. I'm tired of the way I'm being treated by people in robes and hoods and swastika flags, right? And when, when I sit down with them and have these conversations, it doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. They learn now, as I said, not everybody changes. Some will go to their grave being hateful and violent. But many of them have changed. And that's a good thing because when they change, a generation changes, you know? Um, let's stop saying I'm not my brother's keeper. Let's start saying I am my brother's keeper. This is our country. And, you know, whether, whether you are a Black American, a Jewish American, an Asian American, Hispanic American, whatever you are, we are all Americans. We're all brothers and sisters. And we have to take care of one another. It used to be if I was, um, let's say, as a Black person, I'm just hypothetically, I'm walking down the street. And I see up ahead of me on the sidewalk, a black guy and a white guy arguing with each other. And they're calling each other names. This guy's calling this guy an idiot. Other ones calling the other guy stupid, whatever. I don't know either one of them. All right. And as I walk past them, uh, the white guy calls the black guy stupid. I'm going to keep on walking. Okay. I don't know either one of these guys. I don't, I don't know what they're fighting about. It's not, it's, it's not in my business. And for all I know, maybe the black guy is stupid. All right. So I'm going to just keep on going. But let's say same thing. Um, you know, they're calling each other names. And as I walk by, the white guy calls the black guy a nigger. Oh, I'm going to stop. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to come back. And I'm going to defend that black guy. I don't care what he did. Maybe he was wrong in what he did. It doesn't matter to me. But when you called him a nigger, you also offended me because I look like the guy you're, you're, you're attacking. All right. You know, if you have a personal issue with this person, then deal with that person as an individual. Don't paint a broad brush over everybody that looks like that person. But now you have offended me. So now you have involved me in your problem. And now I'm here and I'm going to set you straight. All right. Because I look like this person. That, that's the way it used to be. Here's the way it should be. All right. So now let's say another example, same situation. I'm walking down the street. Let's say it's a black guy and a Jewish person. Uh, getting into it over something. They're calling each other idiot and stupid and whatever else. I'm going to keep on walking. That's not my argument. 
you know, and, and these are individual attacks, all right? But as I go by, let's say the black guy calls the Jewish person a kite. Should I say, well, that's bad language, that's an insult to it towards the Jewish person, but I'm not Jewish, so I'm going to keep on walking. No, that's how we used to think. I should say, whoa, I should come back and defend that Jewish person. The Jewish person might have been wrong. I don't know. I have no idea what the context of the argument is. But regardless of whether he's wrong or right, that person had no business calling him by that name because that is not just attacking him. It is attacking everybody that shares his Judaism. And that is wrong. You you could not paint a broad brush. So I should come back and defend that Jewish person, even though I'm not Jewish. That's what we need more of in this country. Don't just stand up for yourself, but stand up for your brother. Stand up for your sister who doesn't look like you, who doesn't share the same DNA or religion or or color or whatever uh, as you do. When we start standing up for one another, when we become our brother's keeper, that will mitigate and reduce the amount of, uh, of intolerance and anti-Semitism and racism and sexism and homophobia and things like that in, in this country. Because this country is so diverse, so diverse, you know, and it's going to keep on getting diverse. So we're going to need to, to, to begin to protect one another. That's my feeling. Daryl, so you, you've been working with FAIR, um, especially in terms of developing material for uh, corporate training. Are there any principles that you've um, seen or, or, or developed over the course of your negotiating, you know, racial conflicts and applying that to, you know, developing this kind of material, whether it's like um, encouraging either cultural sensitivity or, or diversity training in, in corporate settings? Can you describe that kind of work that you do, trying to bring that into uh, corporate America or boardrooms? Yeah. One of the things that I encourage, uh, that I noticed even as a kid, um, what I encourage, I call it walking across the cafeteria. This is one of the few things that I've developed. And what it is, is this. In diverse populations, such as, say, a Washington, D.C. or a Los Angeles, New York, et cetera, you have a school or you have a corporation, a company, where people of all hues and colors and shapes and whatever are working there together in the school or in the uh, corporation. Uh, They're working on a project together. They might even share the same cubicle. They get along fine. But what happens at 12 noon? Everybody goes down to the cafeteria for lunch. And then what happens? Blacks sit with blacks, Hispanics with Hispanics, Asians with Asians. They tend to self-segregate. Now, does that mean that they're racist? No, absolutely not. People tend to feel more comfortable around familiarity. People who may share their culture, may share their language, their their uh, method of worship or whatever, their political beliefs, right? And you know that's fine. Now, if if you try to go sit at their table, they say, "Oh no, no, no!" You know, go back to where you came from. Go go back over there to your table. You know, you can't sit here. Then yes, there's a problem, and it needs to be addressed. But we tend to self segregate. I don't do that um, only because I was raised from day one around a lot of diversity. When, you know, when I was going to school overseas, my classmates were from all over the world. You know, anybody who had an embassy in those particular countries, they all went to the same school. So, you know, my, my first exposure to school was overseas. I did kindergarten, first grade, third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade. Because you, you get assigned to a country for two years and you come back home. But when I would come home, 
I would either be in all black schools or black and white schools, meaning the still segregated or the newly integrated, the black and white schools. And there wouldn't be the amount of diversity in the 1960s in, in schools in this country that I had overseas. So when I was overseas, I was already living about 10 years into the future because that diversity, that, that multicultural classroom thing had yet to come to this country. It's here now in major cities, but I saw it 10 years before it ever came. It was my baseline. So I, I was never around these affinity groups, you know, coming up. And, um, you know, now I see them, you know, but anyway, I say, get up and walk, you know, leave your group, leave your comfort group once or twice a week, walk across the cafeteria and sit with someone that you don't normally sit with because you have a lot to teach them. You have a lot to learn from them. And chances are you will make a new friend, you know, just walk across the cafeteria and have a seat. And, and start up a conversation. You see that person every day. You might even work with that person in your cubicle, but get to know them outside of work. Get to know them on a social basis. That's how we learn. You know, my favorite quote of all time is, is called the travel quote. And it's by Mark Twain. And Mark Twain said, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And that is so true. And travel, I think, is what has exposed me to all these things, why I'm so acceptive and willing to sit down with people who may not share whatever you know, I was born with. I learn from them. They learn from me. You know, now, all the travel I've done, like I said, does not make me a better person than somebody else. It just gives me a broader perspective. And all I'm asking you to do is you don't have to go across the Atlantic Ocean or across the Pacific Ocean like I did. All you have to do is walk across your damn cafeteria floor and sit with somebody, you know, that you, know, that you didn't know. You will learn something from a gay person. You will learn something from somebody who doesn't look like you or go to your church or synagogue or what have you. You know, let's just do that. Because our country is getting more and more diverse. Either, you know, if you don't, it's, it's like, how many, how many of us still have those little flip analog phones? You know, we hated getting rid of stuff. And, but, you know, finally we moved into the smartphone, you know. Human beings, you know, they, they say that, that a dog is a man's best friend. Well, he may well be. But human beings have more in common with cats than dogs. And I, I've owned both cats and dogs. You know, cats are like humans. We are not creatures of change. You know, if you move, it's best that you move first, leave your cat in your house, get your new house settled, and then bring your cat. Because a cat will freak out, will try to run out the door and try to get back to where it came from. Dogs, you can move every other week. Dogs will adapt. Cats don't adapt. <laughs> Human beings do not like change. You know, that's why they want to hang on to their little analog phone and, and get a, force them to get a smartphone or whatever. You know, so... We have to implement these changes, get people used to it to change. And you do it in baby steps. Just walk across the cafeteria. It's only 12 feet to, to the next table across the room and sit with somebody else. That would open up a whole slew of different things like, you know, that you never even thought about. Like, wow, I, I didn't know that, um, that Jewish people did this or, 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 or Asian people did that or black people did this or white people did that. You know, I, I'm saying everybody must do that. You know, whether you're black, white, Hispanic, whatever, we all should walk across the cafeteria and we, and we will make a new friend. And, and, and furthermore, you'll realize 
the, the, the pro-human qualities that we all have. You know, let's stop being anti-something. Let's start being pro-something. And, and, and when you want change, you know, you can talk about, well, this needs to change. You know, that needs to stop. Well, okay, fine. If it's bad, but what are you going to fill it in with? What are you going to fill it in with? You can talk about change all you want, but you have to have something to fill it in with. And I, I mentioned a minute ago that I was going to give you two, two uh, uh, examples of perception and reality. I gave you a hypothetical one with, with the magician. Let me just quickly give you a, a real one. Uh, this, um, this clan leader that I knew, uh, he had the largest clan in the country. And um, he got murdered. He was murdered. And I knew the murderer, and I knew, his, I knew this guy's whole family. And I, if he had not been murdered, within a year, he probably would have quit the clan, because he and I were becoming very tight. And he was, I could see his mind was changing. But he got, he got murdered. And um, I went to his funeral. Now, I did not know his mother and father. His mother and father and his siblings had nothing to do with the clan. They did not understand why he was in it. That was not how they raised him, et cetera. And in fact, uh, before, long before he had joined the clan, he used to date a black girl when he was in the army. And, you know, somehow he went down the wrong hole and, you know, um, became a clan leader. Anyway, I, I, you know, his mother and father were very appreciative of my friendship with this guy. And they saw him changing for the better. Anyway, um, the, fa- the father and I stayed in touch. And he called me like you know, every other day, you know, crying about his son. He had, he had two daughters and one son. That was his only son that was murdered. And uh, he, 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 you know, cried, cried at me. I'd sit there and listen to him, you know, and console him, et cetera. And one day, shortly after the funeral, he called me and told me he had a gun. And he was going to go and kill the, uh, the murderer. And I knew that he was serious because, you know, this was his only son. He loved this kid, blah, blah, blah. And he was going to, you know, do what he said he was going to do. And so I had to think, you know, how can I reach him? You know, he's that hellbound on taking somebody's life. I, I understood his anger. I understood his sadness. Um, and I knew I had to appeal to him where he was, to his perception. Uh, does he make decisions based upon logic or does he make decisions based upon emotion? Right now, he's making a decision based upon emotion. So therefore, I have to get to his perception emotionally. Because if I, tried to argue with him logically, it wouldn't work. You know, like, for example, if, you, if, if you're dealing with somebody with a scientific mind uh, or a lawyer or somebody like that, the judge, you know, they base their decisions upon logic, upon evidence, uh, 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 statistics, facts. You know, you can't give them an emotional argument. They don't want to hear it. That doesn't mean anything to them. They need the data, all right? If somebody is making a decision Upon uh, emotion, you cannot argue logic with them. They, you know, they don't understand that. All they understand is what they feel. So right now, he's feeling like killing somebody. He's, he's in, in the emotional zone. So I have to approach his perception that way. I can't change his reality. You know, his son is already destroyed. And his reality is, you know, this person destroyed my son's life. I'm going to destroy that person's life. So I said to him, I said, you know, if, if I had said, listen, you know, if, if, you, if you go and kill that person, you're going to get 40 years in prison. You're, you're already an old man, you know, and you're going to die in prison. You know, that, that's logical. That would not have worked. He didn't care about that. He cared about his son. All right. So I had to appeal emotion. I said, listen, if you go and kill this person, you're going to, you know, you've already lost your son. You're going to lose your two daughters because you're going to be put in prison. You're not going to be, the chances are they're going to transfer you halfway across the country. 
because they make it difficult for the family to come see their inmates. So, you know, you're not going to see your daughters you know, that often. You, you want to lose them too? You're going to die in prison and you've already lost your son. Now you're going to lose your two daughters. So I appeal to his emotion because he loves his kids. And he decided not to kill that person. So I changed his perception without attacking his reality. That's what we have to do. You know, understand, does somebody make decisions based upon logic or do they make decisions based upon emotion? Whichever it is, that's the perception that you work on. That's a good, that's a really good tactic. I, I was wondering also, you know, you described earlier that I think it was, you said it was in the bar where there were clan members and there was a group who would not mind sitting with you during the breaks. And then there was another group who just completely rejected that idea and would just walk away. And I wonder if that kind of, you know, is there a, a, a normal distribution of this kind of uh, two kinds of people really who, who would behave that way, either one or the other, well, and, you know, and, and in society, if, if we come across people who are, who are like the latter, who just absolutely do not want to find that, don't even want the opportunity to find that common humanity between groups. What can be done about people like that? Is that is this just a waiting game? Is this just time? You know, that given time and general generational change and culture, that's the only way that they will ever come to the table? Or what is the solution? Well, I, I hear, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And and we have to keep in mind that a Klansman or or in general a white supremacist or racist is not stamped out of a standard cookie cutter. They come from all different walks of life, all different educational backgrounds all different reasons for joining um, a white supremacist movement, or even if they don't join a movement, for adopting a racist ideology. Not, not every racist is, is in the Klan or in some movement. Um, it could be just the person next door who doesn't want you marrying his daughter for whatever reason. So you know, they, all, they come from all different walks of life. They go from a third grade dropout uh, all the way to President of the United States. President Warren G. Harding was sworn into the Ku Klux Klan in the green room of the White House. President Harry Truman had joined the Klan for a short time before he became president. He didn't like it. He got out. Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black was in the Klan when he got the appointment to the Supreme Court to become a Supreme Court Justice. He had to leave the Klan in order to sit on the Supreme Court. Uh, Senator Robert Byrd, who just died a few years ago, uh, he was a Klansman in the 1940s in West Virginia. All right, he, he renounced that ideology, and you know, and later became a great advocate of civil rights and things like that. So, you know, they come from all different educational backgrounds, different reasons for joining. Um, what you do, Melissa, is prioritize. Don't, don't give up hope on, on those people that you think are lost and unchangeable and they'll never change. Some of them will never change. They will go to their grave, you know, being hateful, violent, and racist. Don't give up on them because I've had people like that do change over time. But I realize some will never change. But prioritize. If, you know, if you're reaching this person, but not reaching that person immediately, put that person on the back burner. Don't, don't throw them in the dumpster. Put them in the back, on, on the back burner. Focus on the one who is responding. And then when that person has responded well and has you know, made that transition, then allot your time to the one who's a little more difficult. And sometimes what you'll find that will happen is this. Um, when, the, when the person who does change, who's in the clan, does change, and this other one who's, who's hardcore, not going to change, he sees his buddy change and his buddy's life improve. That might be the catalyst for him now to listen to you. Because it can work that way, too. 
Uh, Daryl, I'm, I'm reminded of this wonderful quote from James Baldwin where he says that, you know, one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they, they're afraid that once the hate is gone, they'll have to deal with pain. That's and right. there's so much of that. In my view, there's so much of that in what is going on with people who are fervent enough to become Klansmen or skinheads or, you know, that level of intensity. And I'm curious how, how much you've noticed that in your dealings with them. And then I have a, another question for you after, but just. Okay. Yeah, there, there, is, there is, there is a lot of that. There is some of that. Um, again, it goes back to change. People don't like to change, you know, um, they, they get comfortable in their, in their rut, even if it's a bad rut, how many women do you know, for example, and I'm not saying this doesn't happen with men, but we hear it a lot with women who, who have been in abusive relationships and they, you know, their boyfriend, their husband beats them within inches of their life and, and they don't leave. Or they leave and they come back. And it goes on and on and on. And you tell him one day he's going to kill you. And finally, he comes within inches of killing you and you finally leave. And then, and then where does this woman go? She gets into another relationship that's abusive. The same as, as the last one. It's like, what are you thinking? Th that's a phenomenon. Because some of these people are more familiar. You know, they, they feel more comfortable with what they're familiar with even if it's bad, rather than try to explore something that's, that's better, but you're not familiar with it. They're, they're comfortable when they know something, you know? And it's a shame because people can change for the better. We got to be able to break that cycle. It's like, you know, it's like, you, know, you find some, somebody who's a, a, a sex uh, offender, you know? And, and when, when, when the psychologist analyzes him or whatever, you find out he was abused when he was a kid and he's continuing that cycle, you know, that kind of thing. We have to learn to break these cycles and help people see what that cycle is doing to them. You know, don't, don't think this person just became a racist in a vacuum. Something transpired. You're not born racist. You know, you're not born anti-Semitic. Something transpired. Was it in your childhood? Was it in your work environment? Was it, with, you know, with your neighborhood kids, you, you know, your, your peers? You felt like an outsider until you joined in. You know, find that reason and then you show them, what, you know, why this is happening because you know they weren't born that and they remember a time when they weren't like that you know was, was your mom and dad racist or something like that your mom and dad a child abuser you know, it's, you know or, or violent you, know, you beat up your wife because your, your dad beat up beat up your mother you know that kind of thing we got to find you know those reasons and that's how we determine how to approach those people so so to, to your point melissa don't give up on the person who who, who you think will never change they may never change but there's always that possibility. And it may not come through you directly to them. It may come from your work with somebody else that they know that was one of their peers. And they see that life, that, that person's life getting better and they want a better life for themselves. So now they saw what you did for that person. Now they're more receptive to perhaps, you know, you helping them. And then another thing is this, when you live in that environment, um, th those, are all, those are your friends. That becomes your family. You know, and and when you leave, you know, the clan or whatever, you have betrayed your family. Sort of like, like, like you were saying, Angel, you know, I, I get all kinds of criticism because, you know, um, I'm sitting down talking with the enemy. You know, I'm a race trader. I, I'm an Uncle Tom. I'm an Oreo. I'm all kinds. Of, I'm, I'm every name but my own. OK, 
So <laughs> I've been called him. And, uh, Me too, you know, man. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, man. But I hear you. I hear you. Just yeah. let it roll off your back. I mean, you know who you are. Don't yeah. let somebody else define who you are. You know who you are. And, and, and so, you know, when, when you abandon them, you know, you're afraid that, that you're going to incur their wrath. And then these new people, are they, are they going to accept you? Because, you know, they shunned you. You know, oh, man, he's, he's a Klansman. I don't want anything to do with him. I don't, well, he's an ex-Klansman. You know, and they, and they wear this label now, ex-Klansman. You know, they always have to attach that. Why can't he just be another human being who has changed? We, we all have changed from one thing to another. Over, over, you know, we, we are no longer the people we were when we were five years old today. We, we've all grown. We've all learned. Why can't he grow and learn, right? So and that's yeah, how we so- have to treat these people. We have to assure them that, and, and the thing with me is this, you know, people who change and, and I befriend them, they're my friends. They are my friends. I am their support. I'm not going to abandon them. You know, they change and then I run off. No, because then they're out there swinging in the wind. You know, they're, they're old, they're, their old family doesn't want them because, because they betrayed them. And, then, and new people are kind of skeptical of them because, man, you were with the clan. Nah, I don't know if I want to get to do this. That kind of thing. It'd be like, let's say, Angel, you and I are, 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 are best friends, right? And, and, I, and I tell you, hey, man, you know, I got, I got, I got pulled over and thrown in jail last night uh, for, uh, for drunk driving. You know, uh, driving, I got a DWI and my, my breathalyzer was way off the charts and they put me in jail. You know, you and I would probably still be friends. But if I told you, yeah, man, I got, I, got, I got arrested last night because I went out and murdered somebody or raped somebody, you'd be, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's the end of this friendship. Okay. <laughs> well, that's how they view, you know, uh, former white supremacists. It's like, it's like a stigma, a pariah, you know? So, you know, we have to help these people re-enter society because they have nobody else. So if they leave, and they're swinging in the wind and nobody's accepting them, what choice do they have but go to some other group that, 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 that accepts them and then brainwashes them into, into their cult? But everybody wants to be loved. They want to be heard. They want to be respected. And these groups offer that. It's like a game. You, you touched on it a little bit here. Um, but yeah, the, the follow-up question was going to be to ask you about, you know, you're famously successful with Klansmen. We have, we have all these stories of you doing such amazing work. And then, you know, I've heard, I've heard at least a few disaster stories of you trying to do it with, you know, people like Black Lives Matter activists and people. No, I wasn't trying to do it with the Black Lives Matter activists. I know, I know what you're talking about. That yeah. was in Baltimore. And, and understand, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter is a movement. It's not an organization. Um, the problem that I have with Black Lives Matter is this. Um, the idea behind the people who founded it, I think, was a great idea. You know, they wanted to put the national spotlight on the plight of black men who, for lack of a better term, were being murdered by white police officers where white guys in the same situation either went to jail or went home. Black guys were going to their graves, sons and fathers, etc. And so they got the idea from Martin Luther King. Um, you know, Rosa Parks was not the first black woman who refused to give up her seat on the bus. There were others, all right? But it never made the news. It's just a little, little Montgomery, Alabama. It didn't make national news, right? So Martin Luther King figured, uh, you know, we need to put the national spotlight on this, show all of America what's going on down here in Montgomery, Alabama. That's why he organized the boycott and, and Rosa Parks you know, participated in all this kind of thing. And, the, and all the news from all over the country, you know, had to put Montgomery in a fishbowl. 
And because it was an embarrassment and shame on Montgomery, they finally changed their, their laws to allow black people to sit anywhere in the bus they wanted. And then every other state that had those same laws began changing. They figured, uh-oh, you know, King will probably come here and do that over here. So let's go ahead and right. change. So that's where they got the idea. And, and Black Lives Matter was born in the wake of the uh, Trayvon Martin uh, murder in 2013. The problem that I have is this. The founders uh, intentionally did not want to trademark the name and centralize. They wanted it to be organic. And I think back at the time in 2013, they had no idea how big that thing was going to explode, you know, to what it is today. Um, so as a result, now you've got 80, 90 different factions, not even chapters. Chapters are, are part of an organization, factions of Black Lives Matter all over the country. Some of them are, are very aggressive, you know, painting graffiti all over the place, destroying people's property and this and the other. Other, other factions are willing to sit down with the city and county legislature and say, hey, you know, we need to work this out. Like, can, can you write up a bill for this, that, or the other? You know, they're willing to work, you know, within the confines of the law and things like that. So you've got all these different factions, and each one has its own little leader. Some don't, don't agree with the others. But see, in the media, they don't differentiate. So for, let's say, for example, um, if, if, the, uh, if the Brooklyn, New York, Black Lives Matter does something stupid, destroys some property, sets a fire on something, or paints graffiti. Uh, and then the Bronx chapter or faction is doing something good, sitting down with the legislature, trying to work out legislation to remove some Confederate statue or whatever, rather than yanking it down and, and destroying it. The media doesn't say the Brooklyn chapter of or faction of Black Lives Matter did blah, blah, blah. They just say Black Lives Matter. So it just right. paints a broad brush. So there's no distinction, you know? The same way the Klan views the NAACP, uh, the Nation of Islam, and, 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 and every other black organization as one and the same. Right. You know, there's no distinction to them. So um, as a result, with Black Lives Matter, you've got too many chefs in the kitchen trying to, trying to prepare the same recipe, and each one has a different idea. And so, therefore, you're self-dividing. And the best way to conquer an enemy is, is to divide and conquer. You know, um, the NAACP, the Boy Scouts of America, the Red Cross, these are all centralized organizations where policy is, is created at headquarters. There's one leader, one president, and that policy is disseminated to all the chapters around the country. So the way the Red Cross operates in New York City is exactly the same way the Red Cross operates in Los Angeles, California. Right. That's not the case of Black Lives Matter, and that's the problem. You know, uh, they had, they had a, a huge voice, but now they've become, you know, detrimental to, to, to their own cause. Because there is no centralization. That, that's actually, I didn't realize that actually, Daryl, because when, when I read, I recently read an article that said uh, that, that talked about Black Lives Matter's official statement to, about the Jesse Smollett case. And, and it was portrayed as Black Lives Matter's official statement. So I don't know if actually I didn't. And that's, it. and that's the thing. Not, everybody, yeah. everybody considers themselves to be the official Black Lives Matter. So when people say, I want to donate to Black Lives Matter, where are you going to donate? Yeah. Well, I think there is an actual organization, but every, every faction, as you, as you call it, kind of does its best to disassociate. And so right. They're autonomous. Their own thing. They're yeah. autonomous because, you know, everybody wants power. So, you know, if you've already gotten power, you know, you know yes, you're, you're right. A new Black Lives Matter organization has been formed. 
but it's not that extensive. It doesn't include all those factions. It was formed it, within the last couple of years, if not, if not even, even less than that. Okay. Yeah. But it, it's a separate thing. But then there are other ones also. So, so if you donate to, to, to this Black Lives Matter organization, is that, it, it, are they going to send money to the other, to the other factions, you know, in your hometown? Maybe not. You know, unfortunately we, we know where some of that money went. <laughs> exactly. So, so, so now if you are a leader of, of this faction of Black Lives Matter and you've got a hundred people in your, in your faction or 50 people and, you know, and that faction over there has whatever, and they have their own leader, each faction has its own little, little leader. Once you become a leader, you don't want to give up power. You don't want to get, look, our last leader, he was only there four years and he thinks he's still there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, but speaking specifically, though, to like your interactions with people on this side of the spectrum, right? Yeah. You, you well, know, those, we, we those, Black Lives Matter, those Black Lives Matter people that you're talking about, um, uh-huh. they reached out to me a year later and they uh-huh. said they'd been, you know, they'd seen me, you know, and, they, and they, they, they better understood what I was trying to do. They didn't agree with everything, but they understood it a little better and they wanted to get together and work together. Oh, and we great. got, yeah, we got together and we began working together. Uh, and then one of them fell off the wagon and reverted back to to, to the scene that you saw in in the film. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you know, you know, people go and come. Yeah. So, but you know, we 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 touched on it at the outset about you know protesters not wanting to come in, even though you were there because you're yeah. also a white supremacist. You're now being yeah. called a white supremacist, which is insane. Um, and then you know the other things of being called all the other names, Oreo, Coon, et cetera, et cetera, which I get all the time, which right. I, I call. I call that the one thought rule. If you, if one idea is out of place, your, your um, group membership is completely removed from you. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I'm curious about, you know, do you, do you notice any significant differences between your interactions in that kind of way, trying to persuade people that are coming from that direction? Is there more of an intensity? Because maybe. Yes, there, there a, is a a more, more of an intensity. I'll, I'll tell you something. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about black supremacists. And, and some Black Lives Matter chapters are full of black supremacists. Some are blacks and whites. And there are some Black Lives Matter factions that have more white people than black people. Yeah. You know, so you got, you, you got them all. Yeah. You got them all across the yeah. board. Yeah. I've okay. Seen them. Yeah. Now, let me explain something to you. A, a white supremacist would be far more angry um, and violent towards a white person dating a black person than he would towards that black person. Because that white person is a sellout. You have, you, you have defiled my race. You are a part of my race and you have sold out. Why would you lower yourself to, to be with that person? They would, they would have far more contempt for, for their own than the, than, the, than the other. It's the same thing with black supremacists. When these particular Black Lives Matter people that you're talking about, those are black supremacists in that Black Lives Matter chapter, or faction rather. When, you know, they were far more angry with me than they were planned. Because I was sitting down with the plan, I was selling out. Was 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 their perception? So yes, it's more intense when you're dealing with something like that. And do you, does your approach change? Do you or no? Do you my approach never. No, 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 it is not. My approach did not. Well, I'll put it this way: my message does not change. My approach, how I deliver the message, might change a little bit because I'm dealing with a different demographic and a different intensity. So yeah, the delivery would change a little bit, but not the message. Gotcha. Now, uh, before we before we ask you the last question that we ask everyone, uh, I was curious. You know, you, you you talked about education and exposure, and we talked a lot about the exposure part. And I'm interested in hearing a little bit more from you about 
the education part. You're very involved with FAIR's pro-human learning standards and, um, you know, kind of developing that curriculum. So what's, what, what do you think is the goal there? What is the goal for you there? And what do you hope to accomplish with it? What I hope to accomplish is to make people more aware, more aware of history, uh, all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the shameful, all right? Not categorize, not separate, but expose all of it, all right? And then we review it, pick out, you know, pick out the things, address those issues, and then move forward, move forward together. Like, you know, I, I've been saying, for, for example, and there are some people who will, who will agree with me. I've been saying this now for 24 years. Um, there's some people who agree with me, some people who say I'm absolutely wrong. I think in our school system, we have Black History Month. I think it is time to get rid of Black History Month. And there are people who jump down my throat over that, you know? And let me explain why, okay? There was a time in our country before you were born, before Melissa was born, but I'm older than both of y'all, probably older than both of y'all put together. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When we had no Black history being taught in schools. It was called American history. And for all practical purposes, it may as well have been called white history because white people were being given credit for things they did not invent and being given credit for places they did not discover. How do you get to this country and say you discovered that people are already here? All right. So, you know, um, we, we had to fight, fight, fight to get our history brought into schools. We finally got one week, and it was called Negro History Week, and that was instituted by Carter G. Woodson, a great Black leader. Carter G. Woodson enabled us to get one week called Negro History Week. We we kept on fighting and fighting and fighting, and finally we got one month. The month of February was designated as Black History Month. The shortest month of the year, exactly, 28 days. You know, and, and don't think it's coincidence. No, it's not. Not at all, man. Okay? No. <laughs> and, but, the, but the reason why we accepted it, because, you know, they're not going to give us everything at one time, right? You know, they're they going to dole it out little by little. You know, first a week, then a month. Okay? So the reason why we accepted February is because it was the birth month of two of our heroes, one being Frederick Douglass and the other one being Abraham Lincoln, who freed the slaves. So we accepted it because it was their birth month. And then, unfortunately, we, Black people, became complacent. We stopped fighting. Right? We never should have done that. You know, because, uh, yes, we needed Black History Month. We needed it for a long time. And it, was, and it was beneficial for a long time. But now, in 2021, even before 2021, it has become detrimental. And let me tell you why. Because every year, Little black boys and girls and little white boys and girls and little whatever boys and girls that are going to school here in this country, they learn about the same half a dozen black people every year. Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman, Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver, and one or two other ones. And by the time you get to half a dozen, oh, you know, our month is over. You know, our black history thing is done. We did our black thing. Let's move on. And, and they move on. But yet. We learn about Benjamin Franklin, Eli Whitney, Alexander Graham Bell, Thomas Edison, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Francis Scott Key, on and on and on. We learn about all these white people all year long. We never forget about who flew the kite and the lightning hit the key and we got electricity. We all know that's Ben Franklin because it's reinforced 
all throughout the school year. But we only learn about Black people in February. So you ask some kid in June, you know, some elementary school kid or, or, or middle school, junior high school kid in June, um, right before they, they, they get out of school for the summer. Uh, who was Harriet Tubman? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I remember her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was that Black lady who refused to give up her seat on the bus. See, they've already got it confused with Rosa Parks because there's no reinforcement. And then guess what? Next February, it's the same six, seven Black people. Every year, it's, just, it's those same people. Now, I'm not taking anything away from those people. Those were some of the greatest uh, Black people in this country. But there are plenty more. What about the person who invented the traffic light? Every time you get in your car, you stop at a traffic light. And that saves lives. Because if you run that light, you might get broadsided. A Black person invented the traffic light. Who invented the ironing board? A Black person. How come we don't learn about those people? Oh, well, we didn't have time. We only have 28 days, not including weekends, right? So, you know, listen. It's time to take everything that we have. And here, here's the thing. So, so, so little, little kids, white or black, when you, when you keep repeating this over and over and over again from, 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 from their childhood to their adulthood, you are subliminally brainwashing these people, blacks and whites, into believing there was only a half a dozen black people in this country that ever did anything. Because you keep hearing those same names over and over again, right? You don't hear about Henry Morgan, you know, and these other people who did things. It's because we don't have time, it's only February. Same thing with, with uh, Women's History Month. Women's History Month is March. I say, get rid of it. You know, Melissa, you don't stop becoming a woman after March any more than I stop becoming black after February. You know, you're a woman all year long, right? So same thing. Let's, let's take out Women's History Month. Let's take out Black History Month. Let's take out um, Pacifica uh, Asian American Month, which is May. And let's, take out, let's take out Native American Month, which is November. Take out these months. Put them all together under the umbrella of American history where they belong and teach it all year long. Okay, that's what we need to do. And, and let me give you an example of why that works. When I was a kid, again, before you guys, I remember the Miss America beauty pageant. They did not allow black women to compete or Asian women, for that matter, to compete. Just white American women. They did not want judges uh, and by the way, back then, all the judges were white male. There were no female judges back then, okay? And there were only two categories, the evening gown and the swimsuit. So women were being objectified, all right? You know, women didn't have talent. They didn't have to write an essay or, or demonstrate some intelligence. All you had to do was look good in your evening gown and your bathing suit, and white men were going to judge you and crown you Miss America. And black women were, were not deemed beautiful enough to compete in that competition, or Asians or Hispanics or whatever. All right. So what did that do for black women? It gave them low self-esteem, like I'm not good enough. I'm ugly. You know, so how did we elevate their self-esteem? We created the Miss Black America beauty pageant to give black women something to aspire to. Yeah, look it up, Miss Black America. All right. So they began competing in that competition and they're getting crowned and their esteem was going up. All right. Now. A little later on, Miss, Miss America, the main pageant, finally opened its doors. And today, any American female, regardless of their heritage or whatnot, is allowed to compete. And since that time, we have had four, uh, that I can remember, four Miss Americas who've been Black, starting with Vanessa Williams, right? So now we don't need Miss Black America anymore because the main Miss America has finally come into the 21st century, all right? So now, you know, you don't, you don't need a separate 
when are we going to stop needing a separate month for American history just because you're black? Obama was the first black president, right? So what are we going to do from now on? Only talk about Obama in February? Put him in the February box? How stupid is that? You know, it's part of American history. Teach it all year long. Because what you're doing is you're telling little kids and, and, and you keep repeating it, it becomes fact to them that there were only a half a dozen black people out of 12% of the population that ever contributed to this country. So it's become detrimental at this point. And that's because we became complacent and stopped fighting. I, I, I love that. Um, it reminds me of Neil deGrasse Tyson, who you know always mentioned that he didn't want to be considered um, a black astrophysicist. He was just right. an astrophysicist. Precisely. Precisely. Um, okay, Daryl, I think it's uh, time to wrap this conversation up. We always ask a, a very standard question to, to everybody as the last closing question. But in your case, I feel like, you know, you've actually answered this question throughout the entire podcast. So we're going to have to maybe just summarize it. Um, you know, the, our focus at FAIR is, is providing um, a pro-human alternative, uh, that kind of perspective, a pro-human perspective to the issues of our day. What does pro-human actually mean to you? And how can everyday people, you know, strive to, to uphold that value? Okay, pro-human, what it means to me is that I support humanity. I support the human effort. Everybody's a human. And what, what it also means is that we need to go back, from my perspective, of course, we need to go back to the original definition of the term proud or pride. Pride and proud mean the same thing. Okay? Um, we hear a lot, I'm proud to be black. I'm, I'm you know, white pride. I'm proud, proud to be white. I'm proud to be Jewish. I'm proud to be Asian. I'm proud to be whatever. No. No, that's not possible. I cannot say that I am proud to be black. Somebody cannot say they're proud to be, to be white. You cannot say you, 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 you're, you're proud to be Asian or, or he's proud to be Jewish or whatnot. The reason why he's Jewish is because his mother is Jewish. Okay? The, uh, the reason why I'm black is because my mom and dad were black. Your parents were Asian, all right, and so on. Now, if you look up the definition under Webster, um, you know, the definition of pride and proud is the feeling derived from accomplishment. All right. When you got your college degree, you accomplished that. That, that, that piece of paper is something to be proud of. OK, when, when you win the 10K marathon, you can be proud of that. That is your accomplishment. If you have a child, you can be proud. I created that child. I mean, that's my pride. All right. You cannot be proud. Uh, uh, of something that you didn't create. You, you did not create yourself to be Jewish, black, white, or Asian, or whatever, all right? You can say, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of being black. I'm happy to be black. You know, you can be happy to be Asian, to be Jewish, to be whatever. Now, don't, don't be ashamed of it, but be proud of what you accomplish. I have respect for you because, not because you're Asian or because you're Jewish or because you're, you're, you're mixed or because you're black or because you're white. I have respect for you because you are a human being. So that I give you my baseline respect. But when I, when I look into your background and I see, wow, you did that, you did that, you did that, you accomplished this and that and the other, my respect meter goes up. You know, I have more respect for your accomplishments than I do for your skin color. You know, so when people walk around saying, I'm proud to be black, I'm proud to be white. Well, what the hell did you accomplish, please? You know, you, you didn't accomplish that. Your parents did that for you, you know? 
That's my feeling. So that's that's being you know pro-human. You know, we we need to get back to the original definition of those terms and let people judge us on the again on the content of our character, not on the color of our skin, as Martin Luther King would say. You know, so what is in your content? You know, did you invent penicillin? Did you win the the uh, the uh, the, the bet you, know, you bake the, the the most tasty cake you know in in the competition. You can be proud of that. Be proud of what you accomplish, no matter how small or how great. But don't take credit for something that you didn't accomplish. I can't think of anyone whose life embodies the pro-human values more more than you. So it's it's really been a huge honor for for me and Angel to it's be able my, to talk to you today. My pleasure, my pleasure. You know, and so you know, all I'm saying with the pro-human thing is, you know, we keep talking about what we were against. I want to be anti-racist. I want to be anti-abortion. I want to be anti-this. I want to be anti-that. Okay, let's stop being anti-the person. We can be anti-the idea. Like, you know, uh, I, I am anti-racism. I'm not anti-racist. You know, that, that person who's a racist, you know, I'm not anti-the person. I'm anti-his or her ideology. So I replace it. Instead of being anti-the person, I want to be pro-the person, pro-human, you know. I don't want to walk around negative all day. I want to be positive about something. <laughs> I love yeah. that so much. Thank you so much, Daryl, for, for being here My today, pleasure. for talking to us. Ladies and gentlemen, Daryl Davis. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to join the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform and by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For transcripts of podcast episodes, as well as access to exclusive Fair Perspectives content, visit us at fairperspectives.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.